Hawking said philosophy is dead. He struggled. I think a lot of these physicists are absurdists. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Do you think this is- <laughs> that, That's another great observation because I've literally been thinking about working on a piece of this, about this. Yeah, um, almost, almost every, you're, you're, you're like you're, the precognition here. Almost every famous physicist, like the people who are, really make fundamental advancements on, on the field, end up holding extremely weird beliefs. Welcome to Neo Academia. That was me, Natasha Mott, and fellow neuroscientist and writer Eric Hole. And we're discussing Eric's new book called The World Behind the World. Eric writes a very popular substack called The Intrinsic Perspective, and he's written a novel. But today we are discussing his first nonfiction book where he explains his theory of causal emergence and where he sees the field of consciousness right now. You know, just casual stuff. Speaking of consciousness, thank you for sharing yours with me. I appreciate all of your subscribes, likes, comments, etc. I also really appreciate my sponsor, Big Nerve, for making this season possible. Big Nerve is an idea tournament game for innovative thinkers like you. I've been working with Big Nerve for a while now to develop a community of innovative, creative thinkers, and their goal is simple. They want to recognize and fund creative thinkers. They're trying to create an entire new profession of innovation where catalysts like me could ask interesting and engaging questions and innovators like you can answer them. There are many different ways to play. You can ask questions, answer them, rate answers, mentor answers. All of this earns you points. At the end of the month, these idea tournaments pay out to the top 30 participants and everybody gains some more experience points and gets known for their expertise. This game is meant to elevate creative thinkers and their ideas. To join my team, you'll have to click on the Big Nerve question in the Theory Gang newsletter, where each episode I'll design a special question relevant to the guest and discussion. All right, here's the episode. Now don't forget to listen all the way to the end for the question. You are the kind of neuroscientist my academic advisor told me to not be and to stay away from. <laughs> <laughs> the defeatist kind. Well, no, no, not even. The more idealistic kind. So in your book, which I loved, by the way, I thought it was just a, like it was it was a great size. It was short, left me wanting more. And I love the cover. It's so cute. Just great. And uh, in your book, you talk about kind of the two different camps of of consciousness. And I think of like two different kinds of neuroscientists. Although we make the same mistake when we enter this field, thinking that we can know shit. Um, but <laughs> I probably would be closer to the house of Crick, Francis Crick, that is, and his astonishing hypothesis where he thinks that the way to get to consciousness is through mapping the neural correlates of consciousness. You know, he's a cartographer making a map of the brain, whereas you have tended towards Edelman, which is more of like the philosopher aspect of this, where you're kind of like, dude, you're making a map, but you're literally on the map. So now what? So how do we marry these things? Like how we're here together, two neuroscientists <laughs> talking, right? But what do we, what are we doing here? How do we fix this? Yeah, I, I think the first, the first thing to acknowledge is that even, even the more conservative approach of somebody like Francis Crick, who, you know, the name, you might recognize the name from somebody who, actually was one of the co-discoverers of DNA, of the structure of DNA. And, you know, once you do that, you can sort of 
you can sort of do whatever you want in science, right? And so he, <laughs> he looked around for big open problems and, and saw that consciousness seemed to be still left on the table. And he, he, his, his proposal, I think, was a very smart one. And that was to proceed very conservatively when talking about consciousness, because consciousness is something that has sort of has a deep history of <clears throat> one might call it scientific perplexion, right? Like it's what people talk about when they talk about the soul. Often it has this lingering question of metaphysics. How exactly is it that that subjectivity is arising in an objective world? And so he has this very conservative approach. I would say what's funny is that even that very conservative approach, like the kind that, that you yourself might favor, is itself extremely controversial in a significant chunk of neuroscience still to this day. And that's due to this long history of behaviorism, this sort of consciousness winter that we had for decades and decades where no one in science was really allowed to talk about consciousness in any sort of significant way. And the problem with that is that in terms of mainstream neuroscience, you're allowed to talk about some of the parts of consciousness, but not consciousness itself. So you can talk about attention or you can talk about working memory, but it's, you know, it's like, you know, the second you start to define those terms, you realize that you're generally talking about what's going on within the stream of someone's consciousness, right? So it's like attention within what? Right. Well, uh, I'm attending to the certain things that I'm conscious of. Right. I might be more or less conscious of some things. So even even these very basic terms. And so I think to, to, to me, the broader issue before even like marrying the houses is uh, of, of the more like sort of extreme house, the more conservative approach is like even just a regular neuroscientist. And I wonder what your sort of given your background, what what, what you've run into in terms of this. But there's still a lot of difficulty and skepticism around consciousness. And I think it shows up in the practice of neuroscience itself. It's not just neuroscientists are ignoring this and it's not impacting them. It's that if you can't, if you just want to talk about attention, but you refuse to talk about the knowledge that like organisms have a stream of consciousness, you're in a very tricky situation methodologically. And it's really actually going to impact your results negatively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so there's fundamental problems here in the separation of the houses, really. You would say that it's I mean, OK, so I get where it was grounded. Right. And in your book, you talk about the history of this and why it was grounded as such. Galileo, you know, kind of bracketed things. And, you know, I've recently discovered phenomenology. And I, have you read Hegel? Dear God, <laughs> I did a little bit in college because <laughs> I'm like, oh, please, God, don't I don't want to have to read Hegel. Like, I, I, I don't think I can be that kind of philosopher and neuroscientist. But in phenomenology, you kind of have to bracket these things and step outside of it. And I'm reading Feyerabend right now, which is like the king of bracketing things and stepping outside of them in science and anything goes-ish. And I think the problem is that when we want to empirically test something, we reach a very difficult point when we try to have these two things coincide. So a lot of the philosophers of science and the physicists who kind of have broken things down to the reductionist level have said, no, 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 we'll just ignore that stuff right now. Let's just do the stuff that we can actually see and measure. And now, I mean, we've got these, again, correlates of consciousness, these neuroimaging things. You know, we've got optogenetics where we can kind of probe neural circuits, but we're still not actually seeing the thing. We're not actually observing consciousness or thoughts or emotions so 
how do I mean, how do we get around that? Yeah, when I got into neuroscience, I mean, I I think that there's sort of two claims here, right? What one is, one is that neuroscience is making no progress, and I think that that would be way too strong of a claim. I think neuroscience has been making incremental progress, but in a way, it's been making progress on the things that most of the people who are when they are young and originally attracted to neuroscience are are not actually that interested in right which might be say you know how the molecular the molecular inner workings of axons right so that that that's a real scientific question it concerns the brain maybe if we have a good enough understanding of what happens inside axons that will somehow you know un- un- unravel you know what 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 a thought is what perception is but it it hasn't it hasn't really worked that way so far in terms of the other you know so so then there's this sort of weaker claim which is that when it comes to the big cognitive questions of neuroscience the, the, the questions that that concern cognition the questions that everyone gets into the field to try to get answers to have we made significant progress in the last like 20 years and if you look at a lot of papers oftentimes the message that they have is oh this phenomenon was more complex than we thought and and so this is one of the big takeaways of contemporary neuroscience for, for, you know, for any particular theory, a theory of attention, a theory of memory, a theory of whatever, you can go and you can find papers. And what you'll see is that, you know, eventually the field will begin to take some initial simple hypothesis and then complexify it and complexify it and complexify it. And oftentimes there's not very much left at, at the end of it all. It's sort of this very amorphous, you know, we, we observed a change, you know, this is, you know, okay, this person was, was awake and conscious. And so, you know, a part of their brain was you know lit up on a, on a neuroimaging scanner and it's very unclear how to sort of move, move from that and so i think that there's a real sense in which neuroscience is a pre-paradigmatic science is waiting for a theory of consciousness and the the issue is that within the brain the, it seems like the main function of the brain is to produce your stream of consciousness i mean and that this is uh, you know so basic that almost everyone agrees when they introspect on it but you know the the, the the cleverness of Crick, and, and I love that you brought up the term bracketing, because the, the cleverness of Crick, and I've noticed this as a repeated problem. In fact, I'm working on something about exactly this right now, where there's this repeated thing in the mind-body problem where people essentially bracket aside as much of the difficulty as they can. And the whole thing, the whole field is really a history of bracketing, right? Like you start with Galileo saying, okay, let's let's just not talk about qualitative properties in science. Let's just focus on what's immediately measurable stuff like physics. That other stuff is, you know, he's a religious man. That other stuff is strange soul-like stuff. Like, don't look at that. Let's just look at the stuff we can actually measure. And that's a form of bracketing. And it allows science to proceed very, very well with immense success for hundreds of years. And then within neuroscience, you have various sort of levels of bracketing, right? Because now we get to the brain. And so we have to sort of bracket around that as well. And so you have, you know, proposals, okay, let's let's just not talk about the mind at all that would be like behaviorism let's bracket that aside but we can still sort of talk about the organ and then you know you would have something like francis crick which is let's talk about the neural correlates and but bracket aside why those neural correlates would be sort of so strange like like why it would be the case that a particular neural firing actually led to the perception of red and so on so you know now, now we're just bracketing aside this extra little bit and then, you know, I think the House of Edelman, and particularly sort of the leading theory within it, integrated information theory, sort of only brackets aside exactly the what it is likeness of consciousness. So it says, well, maybe we can describe 
all these other aspects of consciousness, like its unified nature as a phenomenon, all these other things. And, and then we're just leaving aside this very little bit, which is like why it would be like, why integrated information would have something it is like to be it, right? Like, so, so like, like, let's just leave that very last bit aside. And so I think that the whole thing's sort of like an onion of bracketing. And um, in general, I'm sort of in favor of like the higher level bracketings. But, you know, in, in, in my mind, it, it probably says more about your inability to deal with the problem than it does about how little the problem matters, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that we try to take, you know, one bite of the elephant at a time. And when we realize there's a piece we can't eat, we're kind of like, well, let's just worry about the tusks later, you know. <laughs> so, like, you know, I've started, <laughs> you know, I'm a molecular neuroscientist. So reading any kind of philosophy for me is almost like forbidden. I barely understood Kuhn when I left you know, my PhD program and, and graduate program. And then I, then I, you know, after leaving academia, I was like, whoa, philosophy. So I started now down a metaphysical route and realized that we're talking about has metaphysics progressed and how would we be able to enter into this kind of territory without philosophy and without a background in this? So the idea that Hawking said philosophy is dead, and you mentioned Hawking in your books, I don't, he, he was, he struggled. I think a lot of these physicists are absurdists. What do you, I mean, what do you think? Do you think this is? Uh, that, that's another great observation because I've literally been thinking about working on a piece of this, about this. Yeah, um, almost, almost every, you're, you're, you're like you're, the precognition here. Almost every famous physicist, like the people who are really make fundamental advancements on, on the field end up holding extremely weird beliefs. We're like, like beliefs that it seems like sort of people would deny that there's scientific consensus over. But then right. it's very strange, right? It's like, well, all the super smart geniuses in your field, all the people who are actually the ones producing knowledge, they're not just teaching the textbooks. There's the ones creating the textbooks. They all have just absolutely wacky ideas about how very strange the universe is. None of them sort of like the standard model. None of them are satisfied with it. They think that there's a bunch of holes in it. And you can basically find, you know, dig up any famous physicist. And, and Hawking, you know, is no different. He sort of has a reputation of being this very stayed anti-philosophical writer and i think in one sense that's a that was a flaw on his end he should have been you know i, th I think more more sort of open to engaging with philosophy directly because in the end he ended up holding some very very philosophical positions one that i talk about in the book is that he 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 thought that maybe a theory of everything would be impossible due to the paradoxes and that were introduced into science by science using mathematics itself so the fact mm -hmm. that physics relies on math and we know that math itself is sort of fundamentally incomplete fundamentally paradoxical there's no there's no sort of we sort of had this dream that we could ground everything and and we would find you know the true axioms or or what have you and that never materialized and so hawking thought that this bleeds into science somehow through the use of through the use of math and for him it was a theory of everything i in the book sort of take you know a, a similar conclusion come at it from another way which is that you know it's exactly in the cases of self-reference that you would expect to find problems in science if it were the case that you know science itself is sort of not is is just like we you know originally assumed math was this sort of perfect system and that was going to grant us all formal knowledge and we're going to be able to ground things completely appropriately and then end up not being true 
but no one would then say, well, math is all made up or, you know, useless, right? Like, so, so, so it's some, you know, some really central middle ground. I think we're, we're sort of in this like initial phase of science where we're like, ah, uh, you know, we're, we're going to uncover every truth about the universe. We're, we're going to unveil every single fact that, that that's ever knowable. Right. And, and pro you know, probably not like pro probably probably it turns out that there is fundamental limits on science. And if you expected that to be true, you would expect that to crop up in a few different places. And the number one place you would expect it to crop up would be among scientists themselves due to how easy it is to trigger things like paradoxes via self-reference. So yeah. I, you know, I, I think, I think in, in some ways, I think Hawking is correct. Maybe theory of everything also has those sort of strange properties. Cause you're talking about something that's totalizing and completely encompassing, but, 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 but yeah, I think that, I, I think that it's, it's worth noting that people generally end up holding beliefs that, that aren't contradictory of science. It's not, it's not like Stephen Hawking was not a scientist or did not like science or right. did not think that science could reveal truth, but you know, in the end, he, 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 there, it, there was a question of philosophy that he, he needed to deal with and that he advocated for. Like he, he has a bunch of talks or several talks where he, you know, explicitly, you know, says that he thinks science is incomplete. I think this is a result of coming at things from the hard sciences, from like the physical science perspective. Whereas like what I see in you, you know, like, you know, totally jealous of what seems like your childhood. You grew up around books and all. That. I mean, it just sounds like idyllic, you know. Those of us who came from it from a different angle, from like hard science, we were like, you know, no, we're going to be straight empiricists. You get kind of tunnel vision and you're like, no, got to solve this one problem. Normal science, you know, got to chip away at this. And then you start going, what the fuck am I doing? And then you look outside for a second <laughs> and you, you like you touch grass and you go, fuck, like this is not going to work for me. Like, I'm not going to solve anything. And I wonder if at the end Hawking kind of like, did that in a sense and he was like what have i been doing but to your point to say that a theory of everything isn't possible i feel like it's like blasphemy like how dare you say that at this point we're in this golden age of science like what a what a naysayer and anytime we do that like i i kind of did this like very provocative tiktok where i said that the lk99 is false like the whole thing was false and people were like oh my god you're a hater <laughs> also, you're a woman on the internet with an opinion. You're not, you can't be smart. Look at your eyeliner. So, so people got very upset, but I think it's because they don't want doors closed. Mm -hmm. And, and saying that that's not possible is a closed door. But this is why I advocate for absurdism because, much like with free will, even if it doesn't exist, you kind of still have to keep pretending like it does. Otherwise, everything falls apart. So, you know, is it possible that? You know, and you describe this in your book. You say we should continue working on these problems. I think the the phrase you said was like all of these warnings and these girdle sentences and the Lucas Penrose argument and all these things are signposts, like leading us up to the edge of science going, hey, watch out. There's a cliff here. You know, not saying don't try to spurlunk it, but trying to say, like, you might die. You might fall down. You might lose all of your beliefs. So what do we what do we do there? How are you for that? <laughs> and I and I think it's really um, important to you know you know one, one one thing I've seen ideas fall victim to time and time again is getting overly specific and relying on some highly specific like proof right. So you know an example would be there was this very the, you know Penrose um, introduced some very popular 
and popularize some some proofs about how it is you know th- th- this argument essentially that the, the human mind must necessarily be not computable and you know that the, there's a big back and forth in the literature about that you know so people say well you have to make these various assumptions to make your proof and so on because you're talking about something in the real world right so already you're talking about something that that a proof philosophical proof a mathematical proof always runs into this problem that you're talking about something in the real world but if you but if you sort of zoom out from any one particular argument and just note that paradoxes keep cropping up i think it would be deeply it, w- it would be completely unsurprising if in 200 years we had a much better understanding of exactly what the limits of science is and we know it can do all sorts of things but we also know that there's like a couple places where it just doesn't it just does not want want to go and and again if you think well that that seems like this massive overclaim don't we have a bunch of evidence that that, that science works and is useful it's like well just again just look at math right so you just yeah. make the exact analogy to mathematics right which is that Yes, two plus two equals four, right? There's no, you know, f- fundamental disagreement about that. We don't have to pretend that there is. But at the same time, yes, mathematics is riddled with paradoxes and can never really be, and has never really been, you know, deeply, firmly established in the way that we want it to be. And those sort of places that can't really go. And and I think, you know, it's very reasonable to think that the same thing would be true of science. And so, you know, when I when I say like those are signposts, I'm also saying, like, don't rely too heavily on any one particular argument that this is true. It's more about it's more about sort of a preponderance of evidence wherein you see all where if you study these things, you see these problems cropping up, you know, over and over again. And, you know, I think I think the best case would be some sort of knockdown proof of something like scientific incompleteness. But I think it's almost impossible to do. I think it's like it'd be like monumental intellectual work to actually to actually do that. And but but that doesn't mean that, you know, that that just means that you sort of have this thing that's really amazing. And then there are like some holes in it, you know, in some places. Right. Right. Uh, and, you, and you're sort of like, well, what, what do we do in the case of the hole? You know, I I, I, I wish I it. I wish I knew. Yeah, I, I feel like this is this is a problem for like this isn't even like a problem for like future Eric and, and, and Natasha. This is like a problem for like future Earth descendants, like hundreds of years. From right. Now. Like our grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> So, so the way I'm seeing this is kind of the way I imagine it. In the book, you describe this as well, and it kind of drew a, pic- a mental picture for me of almost like an event horizon, like a, a black hole where around the edges of science, like you can't go there. And you use the example of, uh, you say, uh, you know, imagine you are, you know, you have an island you want to make a map of, and you can map every grain of sand, every leaf, every organism, everything down to the greatest detail, and then you also have to now put the map on the island and then you get this infinite recursion of like zooming in what's the ai software that does this now it's like oh I mean, yeah it like zooms out or zooms in depending yeah. on like the generative ai like autocomplete. Yeah. so you have this like you have this point and that's our consciousness where it's a black hole almost and it's like it requires its own field of study i think this black hole of scientific incompleteness And around the edges, though, the event horizon, I think, is where we see all the disciplines at some point creeping up against like physics, where, you know, quantum physics is concerned and marrying that with gravity and trying to match those lines up. And then what you're talking about, like when you kind of say in the book, you say like, oh, if you thought the psychology replication crisis was bad, wait till you see the neuroimaging one that's about to hit. (laughs) Like that. And the, and all of these things are the bright, shiny edge where 
science disappeared. Yeah, I, I think that that's a really good metaphor. And I think that there's a sense in which by bracketing aside things you want to explain, you're like encroaching closer and closer to the very edge of the black hole. Yeah. But, but you know, you're, you, you, you are getting closer, but there's also sort of this, you know, this infinite regress that's occurring, right? Like where you're like, you keep bracketing and you're getting like, you know, closer and closer and closer, but at the same time, it's still like, you know, d- deeply far away. So yeah, I, I very much, I very much like that metaphor. And, um, you know, w- w- one thing I hope is that when it comes to, to neuroscience itself, you know, I, I, I think, I think we need to accept certain things as neuroscientists you know, there's been a bunch of great work, great like modeling work, where people have shown that a lot of the techniques of neuroscience do not work very well for other complex systems. So very common techniques of neuroscience. So, so one of my favorites by an author that I know is this 2017 paper called Could a Neuroscientist Understand a Microprocessor? And they took this very simple microprocessor that could like play Donkey Kong, and they knew everything about how this chip is effectively works. And they know that it plays Donkey Kong, but then they pretend that they don't know that it plays Donkey Kong. And so then the question is, just using the suite of, of methodologies and tools that neuroscience has, things like knocking out parts of, of the brain, where here it's the chip, things like, you know, we can measure the mutual information between two parts of the chip. You know, we, we can look at like the tuning curve or, or the response curve or something, and, and maybe there's population coding or whatever. Right. So, so you look at like all the techniques and you just throw this bag of techniques at this chip to see, like, does it tell you that it plays Donkey Kong? And the answer is just no, like none of them had anything to do with how the chip functions, how it played Donkey Kong, etc. And you might say, well, that's, you know, a, a processor is, is different from a brain, but I think it's it's quite problematic. Right. Because it should be much, much simpler. You know, neuroscience is psychology multiplied by difficulties of getting through an opaque wall of bone without damaging you know what what the, the the subject that you're looking at and so you know I, I I think that there's almost no way that the the sort of the standard tools of neuroscience are are, are enough to understand the mind I think you need some sort of um, some sort of broader scientific theory to slot things into and in this way I think that neuroscience is very similar to like biology pre-darwin there was yeah. biology pre-Darwin. It did yes. exist, right? Like people were doing things, but it, it was essentially a pre-paradigmatic Re- field, right? You, you had to you had to have the yeah. big theory of evolution to slot everything into, and in the, in the brain, we're missing a big theory of consciousness to sort of slot all these you know observations and studies and everything into. And so, without that centerpiece, without a centerpiece, it's very unclear to me that you can even really have. I mean, a, you can even just go around and look like what fields don't have centerpieces and what you'll find is often the case that like the the more hard the science is the more there's like an established centerpiece that essentially everything like slots into or you can sort of judge and reference to right and then you know the 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 softer the science the less there is like an obvious centerpiece i think that that's a very common trait And, and 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 then it, it's unclear, you know, to what degree those are making progress in the same way that the fields with like very clear centerpieces are. Right. In my opinion, there's something about scale that we're missing. And and when I think about like self-referential systems, this is kind of where my mind goes towards like a theory of this. Like I think about the, the, where I think of the words self-referential most is when I think about 
these esoteric philosophers. So like on my other podcast, which is a lot of fun, we did this challenge where we read Simulacran Simulation. We read Baudrillard at the end of our, because we were kind of looking into postmodernism. And we came out of this going, holy shit, this makes almost zero sense if you don't like, you know, step into his world. And I was thinking while I'm reading your book, you know, you say Magic the Gathering has this kind of incompleteness, this, you know, self-referentialness. I think about Baudrillard as having a self-referential nature. Physics has a self-referential, Harry Potter, you know, I mean, but we're talking about like works of fiction and then like complete fiction, right? And then you kind of like scale back from there, like what can we peel back to be true? And Baudrillard like wants to be true, but it's like, it's not entirely. Physics is mostly true. So I think about these things on a sliding scale. And I think what we're, what we're missing with consciousness is, is scale. Like, because we, we don't understand where consciousness arises from. And if it arises, by the way, are you, would you consider yourself a pluralist or a monist when it comes to consciousness? Oh, I would consider myself undecided on that. No, I knew you were, I was like, he's. He's a one and a half. Yeah, I'll I'll say one thing. It's a lot more like profitable to pitch, you know, your own like pet scientific theory than to pitch something like much more complex about, you know, you know, sort of like meta science around the science of consciousness. But I I think that there's more. more Well, I think like I mean, I think like this is the thing is it's like consciousness emerges. And so we don't even understand where it emerges at what point. You know, what like what is what is fiction? What is this? You talk about this beautifully in your book and you make so many like lovely literary references. This has something to do with it. And we're just I think by not looking at this, we're missing the whole point. And I think we need both houses to to figure out what whatever this this scale is. Um, But can I can I tell you my fear and you can kind of laugh at me? Have you read the book We by Yevgeny Zamyatin? I always forget how to say it. I have not. Zamyatin. So in this book, you know, it's about this atheistic dictatorship where they're they're building this ship to kind of conquer the universe. And the idea is that everybody kind of is calculated and slotted into place and reason wins in the end is kind of the, the point here. Like they want to, everyone has free will, but they want to eliminate it. And my fear, maybe it's an irrational one, but my fear is that, you know, if we discover the nature of free will, if we discover the theory of consciousness, we'll somehow be able to manipulate ourselves into a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a legitimate concern. Already there are some questions about, you know, the extent of neuroimaging, you know, m- mind reading. I think a lot of that stuff is mostly is mostly hyped. I don't, I don't, I don't think that it really holds up to the, to the claims people are, are making of it. But y- yes, if it, if it were the case that we had like a very good scientific ha- handle on consciousness, we could obviously use it to, you know, manipulate the brain. I, I think, you know, if I had to like be specific about what the theory, you know, would provide, it would provide what, what level of the brain is mechanistically interpretable. So by that, I mean, like, you know, we know that for something like an artificial neural network, it's effectively a black box as it gets larger and larger. And so I've put this question to neuroscientists, you know, before, and I've just like never heard a good answer to this, which is that, you know, if we, if we know that that is mathematically true for an artificial neural network, where we have full access 
So all the artificial neurons and all the artificial synapses. And then the function of this thing is still a great mystery, right? And it's much smaller than the brain. Why, why, like what would allow us to believe that, you know, simple, the sort of simple experiments that neuroscience does is actually, you know, revealing anything, anything interesting about the brain. And the answer is generally, you know, please, please, please stop talking. Like, I don't want to <laughs> think about this. I don't want to hear about this. But, but, but I think it's, I think it's like, like relevant to this because the question is, well, so then what would a theory of consciousness provide? And it would provide, you know, the same thing that, that, that scientific theories, you know, all over the place do, which is like a clear causal handle, yeah. right? So it would be like, it would make, it would render the brain interpretable. I think that that's really the, the clearest way to say what a theory of consciousness would do. And once you had that, yeah, you, you probably could do uh, some scary stuff, you know, if you, if you, if you, if you really wanted to. And in one sense, you know, maybe it's good that we didn't, that we don't, that we don't have one. But I think in another sense, it's bad because I think it, it, it creates a massive confusion, particularly around these latest technologies of these AIs. These AIs, you know, are, you know, we, we used to be basically the only thing that could engage in higher level cognition on the planet. Now we're not. They've sort of been lobotomized in many ways not to, but they can talk about consciousness. They can talk, they can refer to all these things, these higher level concepts. You know, they can explain what a philosophical zombie is. You know, they can do all all sorts of things, and it's very unclear how to how to treat them. And I think that, that we, you know, one danger of not having a theory of consciousness is that we fail to distinguish between intelligence and consciousness. And we think that therefore, you know, these systems must have consciousness or agency or free or free will or what have you. And we grant them powers and responsibilities and 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 in many ways diminish the human. And and so I think you know, having a clear demarcation between, well, what is an organic mind doing to create a stream of consciousness, whereas these systems seem intelligent, but it doesn't seem like they have a stream of consciousness. That seems really like fundamental to me and, and a really worthwhile fact. So I think that there's, there's negatives, as you say, but there's also, you know, some very clear positives. I was at Santa Fe Institute this summer and, you know, Melanie Mitchell's kind of like, this shit's not real, you know? At least that's she doesn't say it quite like that, but that's my interpretation. But, um, you know, when I'm reading your book and you quote, I think you quoted Hayek, who was the first to kind of say, if you want some kind of machine you that's going to be able to interpret like another machine, it has to be of more complexity than the machine it's going to interpret and decipher. And I wonder what you didn't say in there, or at least if I missed it, was can we even build a more complex machine than us? And that's kind of what we're talking about. Like if consciousness is kind of our holy grail wouldn't a more complex machine have that or maybe maybe consciousness is something so simple that we're missing i mean i'm i don't know yeah there's there's a few there's a few great questions in there so one is one is you know distinguishing between complexity and consciousness so right now you know we do have good reason to think that you know complexity has something to do with consciousness Mm -hmm. And that we know that, for example, awake brains are just mathematically much more complex in their dynamics and activity than brains that are in a deep, dreamless sleep or unconscious under anesthesia, right? So, so that that's an example of like an empirical correlate that seems to hold up rather well, and it's it, you know it's not incredibly dependent on precisely how you define complexity, but you know it's also worth pointing out that our 
definition of complexity is not probably what most people think of when we say the word complexity. So like what's more complex if on your TV screen, if you freeze frame from a movie or you freeze frame white noise, right? So most people will say, oh, the freeze frame of a movie because maybe it's got Clint Eastwood in it and it's got a background and it's got all these things in it, right? But actually, the, you know, the entropy is so much lower than the white noise, right? Mm. So you'd say, you know, depending on exactly how you, you know, measure, you would say, you know, it's massively more complex to have something like white noise, you know, just blasting into a TV, than it is to actually watch a movie on a TV. That strikes all of us as sort of, wait, wait, wait that can't be true. It's like, well, that's how the, you know, the mathematics around complexity work right now. And, 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 and so... You know, there's a sense in which, well, yes, it might be correlated to some degree because you have this massive difference between awake and, you know, sleep. But is it just that as things get complex, they get conscious? That seems very unlikely, not least because, one, the, by what mechanism, right, would, would sort of an increase in complexity naturally, you know, cohere to an increase in consciousness? And then, two, it seems like, you know, in our daily lives, there's all sorts of systems that can be reasonably described as complex, like uh, New York City, that we don't, you know, traditionally associate a consciousness with. And by the way, that's that's th this is, uh, you know, pr privately I do like the New York City test for like every theory of consciousness, right? So it's, you know, maybe it's self-representation. It's like, well, go down to City Hall, and you'll find within City Hall a bunch of documents pertaining to New York City, right? You know, so you know, it's, 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 New York City represents itself in many ways, right? It, it has it's extremely complex in terms of the information, right? And yet, you know, it would be almost it would be almost absurd to a certain in a certain sense to say, you know, let, let's definitely include New York City in sort of the set of things that that we consider conscious. So anyways, it's it's sort of a good it's sort of a good tester. But but I think the complexity, the, the complexity question for, for Hayek in particular, I think Hayek's, you know, his, his sort of like initial proposal of maybe science is incomplete because we'll never have something that's complex enough to classify us. I think it's a bit I think it's pretty I think this this is what I mean by the arguments, like the specific arguments themselves are almost never like bulletproof. I think that there's a couple bullets for that. I mean, you know, I think you could say, well, humans understand the weather pretty well. Now, there are certain things we don't understand about the weather, right? Like we can't actually directly predict the weather, but it seems like there's a difference between our scientific understanding of the weather, which seems rather good, and then our ability to like predict the outcome right. of the weather which seems rather bad, you know, particularly within the short term, like, is it going to rain in the next couple of days? But I don't think that because you had difficulties in predicting whether or not it's going to rain in the next couple of days, you should then go back and say, well, you know, this weather is a mystery scientifically. We have no idea, right? It, it would be more complicated than that. And science isn't necessarily about sort of classifying all the complexity of a system. It's sort of the relevant complexity for understanding. And so therefore, I think that, you know, I, I don't know if, if Hayek's argument itself holds up, but I think it's a very interesting, even just from a historical perspective, uh, you know, he's one of the very, very first people that I can find who very clearly states the hypothesis of scientific incompleteness, even though I think his arguments for it are not, you know, super strong, but they can sort of be thrown into the mix of like the bag of arguments. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that's your whole point is there is a bag of arguments here and you know, thinking about complexity, I've been in a complexity rabbit hole now for a while, having really only discovered this embarrassingly recently, but it's it's at the core of everything, it seems. It 
you know, when you talk about shifting from the micro to macro scale, I guess we can kind of get into your causal emergence. And maybe you can explain it to me because my thought is that it's kind of this, again, the 1.5, this the kind of middle ground between total reductionism and just like abstract philosophical daydreaming. Is that, would that be an appropriate characterization? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, the way I think about issues of emergence and reduction and the way I talk about them in the book as well is that, you know, science is has this reputation of being fundamentally reductionist. If you look at the actual practice of science, you'll find that scientists occupy their fields of inquiry occupy a diverse array of spatial and temporal scales in nature. So, you know, you have biologists who are looking at cells. Sure, they might have some vague, like almost metaphysical acknowledgement that these cells can somehow be reduced to the underlying atoms. But if you ask them, like, what is the fundamental unit of analysis of your field? Like, what's doing the things that are important in your field? They'll say cells, right? They'll say that these are the fundamental you know, units that we're working with, maybe some, you know, might, might go down to the molecules to a various degree, right, and so on. But it's still going to be the case that if you if you if you looked at biology, you'd see this, like, if you looked at all the spatial temporal skills of nature, you would see this very thin slice. And that's where like biologists spend their time, right. And then the question is, okay, well, if biologists are spending their time up there, are they just are they just confused? Is this just a matter <laughs> of uh, is, or, or, you know, I, I think the only sort of reasonable response by the reductionists goes along the lines of, well, it's convenient. It's convenient. It, it you know, it, 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 this is just about compression, right? So, so that's another way to phrase this. It's, it's like saying it's convenient. It's just saying, well, it's about compression. And that's an information theoretic term, right? So you say, well, this is just, we take the data, we're compressing it because, you know, we can't manipulate individual atoms and so on. And so the, the, then the question is, okay, does that fully explain why science is this diverse array of different spatial temporal scales? And then, the, and, and what I think is, you know, maybe, but we have to test it. You can't just assume that. Right. And if you go and you do modeling work, and this is what I did all through graduate school, which was played around with very simple systems, and then tried to basically construct a spatial temporal scale of description of some simple system. You just represent it mathematically, like a causal model of like, you know, X has an impact on Y, Y has an impact on Z. What you'll find is that there are gains. You get something more than just compression at macro scales, macro scales just being things that are not the ultimate micro scale of the system. So any dimension reduction. So, you know, if I, if I don't talk about every single part of the system, but I talk about some coarse grain of it or some, or, or, you know, or drop out, that's a macro scale. And, um, you know, what we found was that macro scales do add something above and beyond just the the convenience of their use. And that's that they add error correction in the relationships between the, the variables of your system. So you don't have to, if there's a lot of noise in your system, that noise will have vanished and be canceled out at the macro scale due to the error correction. And so now we have a very nice way of thinking about emergence versus reduction because you framed both the, the reductionist proposal in information theoretic terms it's just about compression and you've framed emergence in information theoretic terms it's just error correction right and we know error correction is a common mathematical technique it's the foundation in many ways of information theory or one of the foundations it was discovered 
in the in the sort of the original you know breakthroughs of information theory was how to send more information across an information channel by encoding it to correct for the errors right so you know this is this is like really fundamental stuff and i think that you know this w- w- the way we should think about emergence and reduction should instead be that listen you can you can gain you know you're always gaining in terms of the compression when you move up to a macro scale but you can also sometimes gain in terms of the error correction of the relationship between the variables that's very not just useful for science but you could make it like an argument that like metaphysically that means that the macro is pushing around the micro because that error correction applies to causation and you know so then you have this question of like well what does what in a system and i think that this research answers that well the macro scales can do things or they can add causation to things in ways that's irreducible to the micro scale because you just clearly see that you're you're gaining this error correction so you you use the word add just now but i think this is maybe the wrong word but because when i was talking about this recently with some friends on a tiktok live we were talking about the problem of like the second law of thermodynamics and how you know entropy must increase in the closed system but this kind of gives rise to the idea that Sabine um, Hospelter says kind of like the constituents can't be more than the sum of their parts. And this idea of emergence is what you're saying is it kind of is. But what I what I glommed onto and what you were saying is like, maybe it's not about a sum. Maybe it's about a, a multiplier or an exponent. Like, why why does it have to be the sum of its total parts? Is that? Yeah. So. What? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So I, I I would say very explicit where the extra causation at the macro scale is coming from in this framework that I'm proposing. The, it's coming from the this error this error correction. That mm-hmm. error correction is unavailable at the micro scale. You just can't have it because right. everything at the micro scale is a one off. So like the classic case of error correction, right, within information theory would be that like, let's say I have a very noisy communication channel and I want to send you yeses or nos, right? And because the communication channel is noisy, sometimes my yeses and nos get flipped, right? So sometimes I say yes and it gets flipped to be a no. You hear it as a no. So let's say we want to communicate. Well, what I'll do is I'll just say a bunch, I'll say what I want to say a bunch of times in a row, right? So I'll say yes, 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 yes. Now you'll hear that and you might hear yes, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes. And you could say, okay, well, I got more yeses than nos. So I think that he just meant yes, right? And so I've added in this information to correct the error. But from the observer side, I reduce the information, right? I demand, I reduce the information, right? I just took, I took everything you said, I clumped it all together and I said, okay, let's just consider that a yes. Let's yes. just use the macro state of the message. So the same thing is going on when you have any model, basically, any scientific model that's not like the absolute micro scale of physics. You're, you're, you're sort of saying, listen, there's this like bubbly underlying froth, you know, down here. It's noisy. There's, there, you know, the states are not repeating, right? Mm-hmm. And if we, if we sort of look for the relationships between the variables down there, we'll get a bunch of like noisy, you know, yeses and nos. We'll be very confused. But if we just look at the relationships within your model, and by that I mean like the impact one thing on your model has. I know I'm speaking very abstractly here, but like 
it's like imagine your model was a bunch of cells the impact one cell might have on another by you know excreting something or sending a message or something so you know if you look if you look higher up all that noise gets canceled out and you can just refer to the the actual like messages themselves and it sort of like explains like you, you know no one really like asks these questions you know except like me but like because they're so weird but like things like okay so like your nature why are we, your evolution why are you even building up at this particular spatial temporal scale like why aren't you just making organisms out of like the smallest things you know that you that you possibly can you know and, and the answer is probably that it's just too noisy down there there's too much uncertainty there's too much noise and 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 it's just it's just a lot easier to to construct something up at a spatial temporal scale where you have some natural error correction and it's sort of like you know i want to make structures but I have to make them out of like noisy, out of like Lego blocks that phase in and out of existence. It's like, okay, well, how do you make like a bridge out of Lego blocks that phase in and out of existence? Well, eventually you sort of put them, you know, put, you put enough of them together that enough of them are going to be around at any given time that, you know, something can drive across the bridge. That's what a macro scale, you know, allows for. And you can have sort of these, you know, this like further metaphysical debate about, you know, you know, what precisely does the macro scale then provide like what's doing what within the system can we say that the macro scale is now sort of in charge and i think that those are very reasonable debates to have i definitely talk about them in the book i think probably yes i mean i think you have a very strong sort of metaphysical philosophical argument from from that work that macro scales can sort of push around their micro scales in the sense of you wouldn't just say you know oh i scratched my arm it was because my atoms were in a particular state right. it's like okay well that it's that's true that's true and that does describe the, the dynamics and behavior of the system but does that describe the causation that's going on if i were to build like a scientific model of of your behavior would that adequately capture the, the entirety of the causation and the answer would be no due to the, the missing error correction down at the micro scale so yeah so i think it's a great I, I think it's like it's sort of that there's this practical aspect of just recognizing that macro scales add error correction then there is like what philosophical interpretations you draw from that and as you say they can sort of be you know you can you can you know there's another sense in which this gives you a good great recipe for reduction too when should mm -hmm. i reduce my calls a model? right well i should reduce it when the macro scales are not adding any error correction okay so you have a macro scale it's not adding any error correction get rid of it get rid of it in right. your model it's not doing anything it's not real right it's just there for compression convenience purposes so i think that you know you should think about it more like Listen, it's not that there's just this ultimate law of nature that's like reduce all your understanding and models of systems down to the microphysics and you always have to do that. I think that that's right. wrong. I think it's more like you have to have good reasons to analyze and understand systems at various levels. And then like, here's a theory that lets you that lets you do that. Yeah, I think this is totally practical. Like, I mean, for biology as well. And I think it's this is the part where I think biologists need philosophy because they don't realize that they're that they're doing this, that they're eliminating the, these, you know, com compression components when they when they'll do an in vitro experiment versus an in vivo experiment. And it may, I think, help propel that field. But what I was thinking when I said earlier, like, this is the thing that scares me, is that your theory implies that there's like a, a plausible parsability. So one of the debates we were having on, again, on my TikTok was it's, it's wild out there. Let me just tell you, we're having fun. Um, <laughs> it sounds like it. But one of the things we were talking about is like a ministry of truth. I don't know if you remember when these people were like drinking borax like a week ago or so. 
or they were like consuming borax as like a supplement for boron or whatever, some stupid situation. People were really up in arms about it. And I'm like, well, what should we do with these people if they are in fact harming people? And so we got into this kind of philosophical reductionist argument of like, can you tell that this one person influenced these people and to what extent? And then how much did that actually harm them? You'd have to parse all of that out. And what I see in your causal emergence is that parsability or at least the potential for parsability. Mm. Do you think that's a thing that could be testable? And if so, how do we then test it? Yeah, that's a great question. And it also, you know, one of the things that I have wanted to do is apply this framework to artificial neural networks for precisely that reason which is that maybe it does help with with parsability or, you know, as they call it, me mechanistic interpretability, basically same thing, probably. And, and I think it probably I think it probably does help quite a bit. On the other hand, just to give, you know, inject some ease here, you know, calculating this, the, the trouble I always ran into with every like model that I created, is that the number of spatial temporal scales, the number of possible models you can make of a system expands rapidly as the system grows. I think I calculated it in one paper as some sort of bell number. That means that it's just growing. It's growing so fast. It's like a, you know, faster than like an exponent. Like it, it's growing so, so fast. So searching across those for like the best possible model or description of a system is very difficult. Um, you know, give, give Wolfram like a, a decade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think... Uh, and, <laughs> And we'll see, like, maybe there are heuristics that are really, really good at this. I think probably, I think probably not. I think it probably that, that, that there are some heuristics, but they're dependent on the system mm -hmm. and they have sort of not broadly applied. In. Yeah, I don't, yeah. I don't know if there's just going to be like really obvious shortcuts you can take. And so in that sense, I would say that that's the biggest from a practical perspective, the biggest limiting factor of this of this sort of you know theory of emergence and reduction which is that it should be very useful for helping people create models but due to the complexity blow up that you get as your models get larger it becomes very difficult to to pinpoint and calculate that could be overcome to, to a certain degree but i think from like a practical perspective that's where i would sort of it critique really my own my work mind. i would say like okay this is really really interesting you, you know you're probably right how do I implement it? And then you say, I, you know, you've, you've, you've introduced like some heuristics and done it on some data. Like we've done it on, you know, protein interactums to find the right spatial temporal scale. We've done it on, you know, different sorts of networks and so on. But all that work has involved, you know, assumptions about how these things are calculated and how the network's underlying dynamics are behaving and so on. So I'm open about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty open about it too. No, I I enjoyed this part of your uh, of your book a lot. I mean, integrated information theory, I have like I said, I've just started really getting into it and so I was like the phenomenological chapter, I was like, "Oh, shit. It did it did throw me for a loop." But, you know, studying complexity and stuff, like like I said, the Santa Fe Institute provides like the complexity explorer and so mm -hmm. there's like so much information that you can learn and actually I'm going to do an entire podcast season probably on both podcasts on complexity. But um, this kind of brings me to like maybe some more like, you know, less sciencey questions, more like academic questions about what you're doing with your career. Are you going to be doing this kind of stuff now on your own? Or what do you, what's your, what are your plans? 
Yeah, I guess. No, I, you know, I, I, I would like to, you know, right now I'm, you know, for, for those who don't know, basically I, 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 I left Tufts University as a research professor to, to sort of write on Substack for a while. I don't know if I'll ever get like a pure academic position again. M- maybe, maybe I will. It's certainly possible. I think for me, like what matters is can you, can you find time to do fundamental research, you know, and I think that that's really important to me in that the simple truth is, is that you only get a couple original ideas in your whole life. You know, there, there's also a sense in which like causal emergence, like it's out there. Like I've, I, I think I've argued for it. Well, if you understand it, I think you, you can get it. You know, unfortunately, you know, if you're a scientist, you, what you really learn is that if you have a, a discovery or an idea that's actually original, you basically just have to like beat it you know, for your, like your whole life. Like you just, this is a horrific metaphor. You killed the horse and now just to let everyone else know that it's dead, you just have to beat it with a stick for the rest of your life and you're condemned to that. Or else, you know, someone will eventually, you know, no one will notice you're beating the horse and someone will like pull up with like a horse that looks like suspiciously almost exactly identical, (laughs) but they've like called it something slightly, slightly different, right? They're like, it's the theory of, you know, error minimization, you know, and, you know, and then, and then they, and then they do it and they, they do it better. And so, and that's fine, you know, but it, it happens, but, but I do think that there's something, I don't know, something slightly like ridiculous about that, that people don't quite understand about being a scientist or being an intellectual in general, that it's like, you're yeah. sort of allowed like three ideas and then you just <laughs> have to like repeat yeah. those ideas sort of. Sort of so you're basically like Wittgensteining this shit. You're just like, all right, I solved it. Bye. Like, is that why you're leaving? I mean, what? Why, why are you leaving? Well, I was originally, I was originally leaving because just because I wanted to take a bit of a break from research and focus on writing. So you know, that was that was one of the big. You're a writer, my dear. Yeah, yeah. So was, you're a writer. I spent a significant amount of time just writing, and I wanted to focus on that for a little while. I have a couple ideas left in me somehow despite being old and used my brain has a little bit old. left aren't you like and 30 under 30 or you... <laughs> that's, i'm 35 now and you know oh, okay. i feel yeah. like it's i feel like yeah you know it's you know it's like when are poets you know like poets and mathematicians like most famous like way younger right so and you know you comes with wisdom you get more wisdom which is really good but but i would yeah, I, I would like to return to doing some basic research on a few last, like, really big unanswered questions. I do have a little theory of consciousness that I've been, you know, tooling on that sort of, you know, m- maybe it could help make some progress, but but I, but I would need to, like, find, you know, f- funding and, and so on for that. I mean, you know, so, so, so right now I'm just, I'm just writing uh, on my substack, the intrinsic perspective. To be fair, I've only been out of science. Like, I've only, like, not had an academic position for, like, six seven months now you know (laughs) you know people are like you know it's so sad that you've just completely you're just not a scientist anymore it's been it's been seven months it's been yeah no no but but you're right like like it's it's totally reasonable too because with academia like the second you sort of leave like the pipeline it's very very difficult to to break back in but you know i've been trying to get some grants on my own and, and and maybe even be able to work with phd students and some other people and publish the research on the intrinsic perspective sort of my blog and 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 we'll we'll we'll, we'll see how it goes but I, I i think i have a couple a couple things left to give from like a pure research perspective 
but 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 for right now i'm taking a break yeah yeah i mean i i've i've wondered this myself because i do miss it um i miss i miss the intensity of the exchange because you know doing doing podcasting it's great for communicating things and letting people kind of know and transforming the information into something that's more digestible but at the same time you don't get like the intellectual rigor you don't get to actually like argue with people who actually know what the fuck they're talking about you don't get to bring an idea to the journal club and then have someone say no that's dumb because i read this you know i talked with adam mastriania about this and his idea about science house i thought was super cute but it's like why don't we have kind of like a counterpart for for what yeah. is professional academia it's so silly that you know academia is totally flipped on its head right now it's trying to like educate everybody at like warp speed on who knows what and it's just i think really failing those of us who are like really like diehard fans of knowledge <laughs> yeah and 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 you know my my sort of ambitious plan was to 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 leave and then take, you know, a, a certain amount from, you know, the 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 intrinsic perspectives income, and basically see if I could give grants to people I want to work with to do papers. Just do it very directly, yeah. like help fund like a PhD student, or 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 even just fund like an independent researcher to work on things. And so I'd still very much like to do that. The problem is that you have to make, you know, a certain total amount of income. To, to, to really be co like comfortable doing that, right? Because if you're just diverting, you know, all the income to, you know, paying other people, then, then you know, your, your family starves and, you know, you're very sad. Right. And so, yeah, but, but, but I think that that sort of thing is necessary. I think it's really important. I think that there needs to be, you know, ways to do science that, and ways to engage intellectually that are not completely ensconced within academia. Mm -hmm. I think it's very... It's just it's just a missed opportunity. That doesn't mean that academia should be like replaced or thrown mm -hmm. out completely in any way. That's you know I, I always tell people that's not what I mean. But there should be some sort of superstructure that allows for people to do intellectual work, deep research, um, particularly I think on theoretical subjects because yes. that's the stuff that you don't need a big wet lab to do. You don't right. need you know all sorts of stuff. So that 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 really is quite doable over Zoom. Right. Like you can really put together real scientific papers over Zoom. And so I think that there should be like alternative institutions. And that's sort of like my, you know, pipe, pipe dream for something like the intrinsic perspective, which would be, you know, eventually, you know, it's, it's, it's taking in enough money to, you know, help to, to, to pay for like, you know, researchers to do like part time research or, or, or full time research on, you know, various topics. And we can sort of increase the depth of pieces until we're occasionally getting pieces that are so deep that they're just papers. They're just scientific papers, but yeah, but better you know, written, hopefully. I have some thoughts about this as well. And I think setting up like kind of a structure outside of academia as a model, I think could actually even help academia itself because academia has like a relatability problem. And it's not that you have to be relatable because people are not, I mean, I guarantee all, people who watch this or listen to this, a lot of them are artists. They're CEOs. I mean, they're not scientists. They're not, certainly not mostly complexity scientists. So there is a limit and they won't probably be able to fully grasp everything. But I think the role for science communication is very, very critical and could help something like what you're proposing, where people see the questions and the problems that you're working on and they're translated directly to them to say, this is big shit. Like, you know, the, all the LK99 superconductor stuff that's coming out. People don't have a clue 
what superconductors even do. So they're like, why are we hyped about this? They don't realize, I mean, this could mean like free energy for, they have no, people have no idea what this means. They have no idea, you know, what a validation of this means. And so I think translating these kinds of high level things at the leading edge is like, nobody does this. They, we're translating, like thinking about information theory. We're thinking about information theory still. We're translating this as science communicators, whereas y'all is on integrated information theory, <laughs> which is like a whole nother level. So I think science communication has like a weird role to play in this that we haven't quite figured out either. What it's for, what do we want it to do? How can it support the academic apparatus, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so. ag agreed. I mean, I and I think, you know, hopefully... You know, in an ideal world, I think people should be able to sort of both communicate ideas, but occasionally propose a new one, right? And I think that that's, that's what's missing in the current system is that there's no good in-between um, status. You're either sort of a researcher with funding within a university, and therefore you can somehow occasionally find time to like work on, you know, pr pr you know actual deep research and papers, or... You're sort of Neil deGrasse Tyson, and there's nothing wrong with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I like Neil deGrasse Tyson actually, but you know, it, 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 it's sort of these like polar opposites. It's like, well, but but think of the, the the vastness of the intellectual spectrum in between there, in that there's clearly people who can still do original research, but also occasionally want to talk about talk about other things. So we'll we'll, we'll right. see if like, but it seems as if maybe through Substack, through some through some of these other you know newer systems there might be ways to support that sort of thing. We'll see. Yeah, I think there is. Because if you are curious enough to learn about a subject that you have no clue about and you start learning about it, you develop all of these metaphors that most people who have not have been studying this forever never even thought of. Or you'll come to some weird conclusion from a different angle. And I think that is so valid for people to have these kinds of conversations. Like maybe it's not as intense in the subject matter, like, the exact theoretical and mathematical position, but still, I think, sparks some kind of change that could happen. Something, right? Like, and maybe I'm reading too much Fire Robin, where he says, you know, all ideas can contribute to the growth of knowledge. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I've fully lost my mind at this point, but I'll let you know. Like, <laughs> this, yeah, yeah, this, this world drives us, drives us to strange places. Yeah. You, I mean, how can you be doing anything normal at this point and consider yourself healthy? Like, it's just, speaking of healthy, how's the baby? Oh, very well. Very yeah. well. Oh, yeah. good, good. Well, congratulations. Thank you. You know, I, I sometimes on this podcast, we kind of go in weird directions. But one thing I really want to do is make sure that people understand that the people on this podcast and the people doing this work are human. And having a baby to totally changed my life. I mean, look at me. I'm not in academia anymore. Look at you. You're not in academia anymore. I don't know if that played any role, but it's a it's a wild one. Yeah, and it's absolutely amazing. Cer certainly, I I because of that, I made the decision that I always want to work from home. Yes, um, me too. So because that's that that's like what what works works best in terms of me just being able to actually like you know, spend time. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was a, in a way, yeah, that was a factor, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it. I thought, you know, I was like, no, I'll be back to work. And then I'm like, Ooh, but <laughs> what, 
What if I didn't have to? What if? Yeah, I, I think it's a very real phenomenon that we're like often very uncomfortable talking about. I think it, and and that's that like you know when when you have sort of have this new life that you're suddenly responsible for, this suddenly seems like quite quite important, and it is. And then some other things suddenly seem quite less important, where you're sort of like, you know, wait, so I so I sell so I sell ads, you know, like you, you know, it's like okay, so I'm you know. Like, like, even if you, you know, I've got a high powered job, right. Or something, but it's like, like, is this really like, what, okay, I'm grinding, but like what, what precisely. So I I think that that's a real thing that people, people recognize and, and have to deal with. I think some people are like, no, it's fine. Uh, And some people are sort of like, I don't know if I can really justify precisely the amount of time that I was spending on the thing, because some people are neurosurgeons and they work in trauma wards and, you know, and, and then there's like a big amount of sort of like BS jobs <laughs> and everyone knows, you know, in consciousness. Yeah. Kind of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's, and that's, and that's okay. But I think there has to be a certain amount of like, hmm, I recognize that this is at least slightly BS. Yeah. Well, I think that that's even true for scientists, by the way. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the only problem with science is I couldn't very well pipette, you know, from from home. But mm. but yeah, I think, you know, it, it, you don't know what's going to happen when that when that occurs. But I think openness has something to do with it. Unfortunately, like if you're very open to, to the things, then you may experience like a sudden life change and be like, oh, no, my whole life is not what I thought it was. And the good thing about it, though, although I will say now my daughter's 11 it's temporary but it only really kind of shifts and like morphs into something else because now I've got you know volleyball and I'm taking her here and there and she wants to be close to me which is still like you know at 11 you're kind of like oh my gosh like when she calls me to come sit next to her at a, at a game I'm like okay I'll be there and then when she's 25 I'll probably feel the exact same way so it it changes but it you know you do get to expand your capacity to go back into things and you and you come at it with a different perspective so maybe maybe a more intrinsic perspective yeah i mean there is a sense of just to tie everything up you know there is a sense in which okay now you know here's sort of like anti anti evidence for solipsism right you're like this you know this this whole I think they're very much a sense of which your whole life is sort of, and this is true for everybody. I think, you know, kind of like me, you know, it's very eye focused because you're at the center of your own stream of consciousness. Right. So it's like, you know, what am I going to watch on the, on the inflate? What is the the inflate movie going to be good for me? You know, it's like, and uh, you know, I think, I think when you have a kid, there's suddenly this like other stream of consciousness and the presence of that stream is very like clear to you. And you sort of like weirdly care about its contents you know, like what they're looking at is, you know, it's like, oh, are they looking at something nice? Are they happy? Are they, you know, like, like just getting joy out of their own experience, even though you're not the one experiencing it. So I think that there is something, there yeah. is something fundamental about the recognition of another, of another consciousness. There's a deep sense in which, you know, you could, you could make a similar claim about, you know, partners and so on. So I'm not saying that kids are sort of the only way into this knowledge or anything like that, but it is sure, sure is a fast way to be forced to acknowledge not at an intellectual level that there are other consciousnesses out there that are interacting with you, but at like a really fundamentally felt level of like, okay, I'm definitely not the most important consciousness even in the room anymore. Like this thing's consciousness is way more important than mine. Right. 
Yeah, and the, and the biological aspect of that as well, realizing that you know your you see your nose on that child, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> so maybe it maybe in a way it kind of boils back to a little bit of like that solipsistic urge to be like, no, this is mine. It's still me. I have to make sure it's okay. Kind of ruined here. I ruined your anti. No, I think there is a because because you're it is sort of is like the stream of consciousness like split off, and there's like this yeah. like new like part of it new that form. you're not really connected yeah. to, but you kind of know that like you're like that's kind of my stream. It's like that's me. It's, it's sort of originated. Way. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's awesome. Well. Uh, I won't keep you from the baby, but this has been wonderful. I've loved your book. Everybody should read it. It's it's short enough, I think, to to bring you in and leave you wanting more. And it's well written, and it's just you need it on your shelf, I think. So, oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Natasha. It was absolutely a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, that's my goal. Thanks for hanging out. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Here's the big nerve question. What could be an unexpected place to look for ideas that might inform a theory of consciousness? Be sure to click the link in my newsletter that will take you to the Big Nerve Tournament for this month. Good luck.